The ancients' primary concern was religious and not technical. They did not employ or develop those techniques beyond the point where they could that would impede or prevent what was far more important. And that was a pursuit of the higher orders of reality, right? The transcendent. Hello, and why are we? Wait, why are we? What talking? We're talking because we're not talking about rabbits. This is a podcast brought to you by First Things Foundation. My name is John Hears. I'm the founder and current director of that organization. But what we're really doing on here is not organizing thoughts as much as sharing them in a podcast about heavy things done lightly. Philosophy, I don't know, theology, all kinds of stuff. Today, we talked to one of those kind of people. We talked to Father Deacon Ananias Sorum. He's a PhD, CEO, founder and president of Patristic Faith. Interesting character. Out on the edges, lives in Montana, talking to us today about old world, new world stuff, especially when it comes to COVID. COVID orthodoxy and the old world. What the heck just happened to us? And how do we make sense of it on Watar? Father Deacon Ananias, welcome. You're on uh, Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? It's been a blessing. We were chasing each other around a little bit since really last year. And now you and your patristic faith work and all of your cool ideas are here with us. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me, John. Tell us just where you are right now. Give context for folks and um, just a little bit about maybe patristic faith or just what you do. And we'll get started with this really interesting paper you wrote about COVID. Yeah. So I'm in Helena, Montana, the, the capital of Montana. And I teach philosophy, logic, ethics, um, political philosophy at Carroll College, which is a small Catholic liberal arts college. It's a wonderful Mm -hmm. college. Um, And uh, I serve at Holy Trinity Serbian Orthodox Church in Butte, which is about an hour south of me. And yeah, that's, you know. I'm just so happy with one of my projects, which, as you had already mentioned, Patristic Faith, and which was a, a collaboration of like-minded traditional, um, you know, priests and content providers, all brought onto kind of one platform, and we're publishing, you know, multiple articles a day, and mm, it's yes, just are. really taken off, and so I'm very excited about that. And so. When folks are looking at, if you're watching on our YouTube channel, you'll see Father is, well, he's got his Orthodox beard. You'll recognize he's got his, he looks like a woodsman, but you're a deacon in the Orthodox Church. And so, yeah, not, by the way, this this is normal looking for Montana too. It's not just the. <laughs> I was going to say, you're good to go. That's a Walmart outfit you have on. <laughs> yeah. No, really, it's funny. Your beard is beautiful, uh, but so you're not ordained a priest, but being a deacon is on the way, more or less. Right. Yeah. right. right. So in the Orthodox Church, it's uh, the first level in the priesthoods. So we're in the priesthood, and that's why we get the title Father or mm-hmm. Father Deacon, but um, not a priest per se. Right. But on the way, the first step within. That's correct. So, but you are a writer. And you've written a lot of interesting stuff. So today we're taking a look at uh, a paper that's going to come out. Um, I guess it's coming out 
perhaps this year uh, into a book uh, that you probably in the next couple months. The editing's all done. And um, I don't know as far as like how long it actually wants all the final editing's done, which was completed maybe a couple, three weeks ago or something like that. How long the publisher takes to actually then print and bind and do all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm, that's not my world. I, don't, I have no idea. Can't wait to give them, give them can't the wait to Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's an analysis essentially of orthodoxy and COVID and the modern world that we're living in, which fits perfectly into our podcast. So, yeah, and I'll give a little background. Please what, do. Please do. Why um, I started kind of focusing in this area. So, um, both my undergraduate and graduate work, uh, I focused on uh, ancient Greek philosophy and like Aristotle. But at the same time, as I went into my grad studies, I started uh, studying with some prominent scholars in the philosophy of science. And I've always liked science. I had a, a double minor in math and science in my undergraduate with the double major in, in philosophy and theology. And you don't see early on how these things are all kind of coming together. Mm. But all of it did come together that um, when I was teaching about a year, year and a half ago, a a political philosophy class, while working through a lot of the kind of current issues that we've been going through with the, uh, uh, the COVID that all those kind of areas of study kind of converged. So I was able to do both a kind of scientific analysis at a philosophical level of like what's actually going on, what constitutes as good science, and then couch that in terms of the political aspect too, um, in its historical setting. So how did we get here? What's going on? Um, we don't just analyze science in a vacuum, mm-hmm. but have to historically situate it and then identify particular ideological movements that can influence or even corrupt the science. So um, I was kind of happy that it was just all these what appeared to be disparate and unconnected areas all kind of just <laughs> came together right. through a crisis. Right. And it inspired me to actually really kind of hone in and use my area of expertise. So you can trust me, by the way, I'm an expert. (laughs) Well, this is it, right? This is what my, my good secular friends always tell me when I dabble in this stuff. I'm I'm sure you did your internet research, but you've actually spent years and years on this. So when you hear folks say, follow the science, Mm -hmm. there's, there's an epistemology in play, right? There's a way of knowing that maybe that, What's going on with that term in your mind? What are well, they doing Well, a couple different there? things. Um, it's a real naive view of science. Um, what the, the vulgar, and by vulgar, I mean common folk mm-hmm. that are neither scientists nor um, are they specialized or even familiar with a, a, a tiny bit of the literature or philosophy of science of how that actually works. And it's because of people's ignorance, as well as just kind of how 
um, modern media and propaganda and systems of control in our modern age work, it makes people quite vulnerable um, to being deceived. And so you use this term. And by the way, in all propaganda, um, they use kind of catchphrases. They always sound good. You know, follow the science, save lives. Um, I'm trying to think of things, you know, apart from this current um, issue that we're dealing with. Now, I remember I was talking to my students this week about that that the slogan um, right to choose. Give me doesn't that sound great? Freedom. And (laughs) and so is critical thinkers, even if you're not a professional philosopher, um, we all should really reflect on that. What does that word mean? What does the phrase, I, I almost kind of think that they're like sorcery words. They cast a spell over and get people not to actually be critical in their thinking. Right. right. And they're designed that way on purpose because they're not concerned with conveying information, but rather for control and manipulation. Part of what I try to make philosophy fun um, for my students So what I always say is that, look, we're learning philosophy. Here's a bunch of smart people with stupid ideas, and they're going to trick you (laughs) with their words. Um, And we're going to be philosophical detectives and critically think through those and say, yeah, almost got me there, Kant. (laughs) You almost tricked me with your words. Right. And it makes it fun, but it's there's a serious part of it to be critical about what do these words mean? And you'll see this in contemporary um, issues. But what I call them is sorcery words. Mm-hmm. And those are words, for example, let me contrast to doing good philosophy, or let's say law, you want to avoid ambiguity and vagueness. And the purpose of words is to be concise so that they don't leave room for multiple interpretation and that they convey um, accurate information. But kind of in a postmodern world where people have kind of abandoned truth, they're not really concerned about the words or slogans or phrases conveying information, but rather power. Everything's in terms of power now and control. And so that's why I call a lot of these words uh, and phrases um, sorcery and because they cast a sort of spell. They're not, if you, if you ask somebody, you know, um, in the postmodern world, what does it mean to be uh, a female? They they can't actually tell you. Um, What does it mean to say, follow the science? What does science mean? Science is one of these words. Now. Yeah, science is one of these words. Do you mean um, what particular view of science? A realist, a critical realist, naive realist, instrumentalist, metaphysical quietist? What do you expect science to do? Who are the experts on this? How does one determine? None of these questions are asked, but that phrase is designed to actually kind of shut down any kind of critical thinking. And you'll see this that when I um, cite Eric Vogelin, that this is part of the kind of neo-Gnostic kind of tactic is to, everything's in terms of power. 
his truths out the door, which would have been the arbitrator on these things. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what you want is something that sounds nice and casts a spell over. Doesn't everybody want to follow science? Doesn't everybody want to be smart? Um, Typically, you put things in dichotomies. Either you're this or you're that. You don't want to be in the dark ages, so come follow us and follow the science. And so it's my task as a professor of philosophy to train students to don't take anything at surface value. Question it. What does that word mean? Why does that person have the authority? Who is the authority on these certain things? And you begin to go below the surface Mm -hmm. and then find out that oftentimes um, it's a whole house uh, deck of cards, that it's it's a facade, that it's all created to kind of cast a spell and move people in the direction they want and not convey information or critical thinking. So as a philosopher and a deacon, is there a science that you would say is not veiled in this way that, that actually we could point to as modern people? Is there something like science that is real? Well, I mean, there. I'm pro-science if it's actual science. So what would it be? Uh, it's, it's a method, as you talk about in your paper. It's not yes. an ontology. It's not a reality. It's a, it's a method. It's a methodological means toward re- learning about reality. Is that what science is? Yeah, I tend to take more of um, what's a metaphysical quietist or instrumentalist. Now, it's a big word, but I can kind of explain it exactly as you said. Science been, has been, is a type of methodology, and it's been extremely successful. Well, successful in what way? Um, as an instrument for predicting, um, for building, producing various things. And because of that success, what often happens is the temptation to then move it beyond what science is actually intended to do and be a kind of a grand narrative about um, ultimate reality um, that, you know, that replaces kind of more fundamental and actually stronger epistemological disciplines about what's telling us about reality than science can ever do. And so I'm fine for keeping science as good science and its methodology within that domain. And then as a philosopher of science, when I see that it begins to go out of bounds and beyond and become something other than science, then it's my duty to call that out and say, we're not, do- that's not actually science. That's okay. scientism um, and it's dangerous. So in the old world, uh, our work takes us to a lot of places that still practice what we call maybe something like old world or ancient culture. I see people doing science in the sense that I see regular people figuring out the best way to get their products to market by improving upon something like, I don't know, their cart, and then improving on the way they carry their, their fruit, and then making a better product. I mean, or doing something like making the market a better place. Better, though, is not really the science, right? The science is in just fixing the wheel. And haven't we always done that? It feels like old world and new world. We've, so scientism, though, I think you argue in your paper, which leads to our conversation about COVID, scientism is actually 
more like a faith or a religion. Is that how you? It's like it? a mythology. I mean, you have the excellent methodology for doing the things that you want to do that leads to this kind of productivity and efficiency and things like that. Then you have the other thing, these kind of grand narratives and mythology, whether it be evolution mm. about, which is far beyond what the instruments of science and methodologies could ever tell you. And as you said, it, it takes on this kind of air um, of a mythology, a, a faith, a religion. And you see this not just with you know, evolution, but uh, a lot of different things with uh, climate change or also, you know, what we're currently going through right now um, with the, the COVID yeah, crisis and stuff like that. It's not just a methodology. It's a grand explanation about um, everything that goes beyond what science could ever tell you. Do you call that scientism? Is that was that in your paper? Yeah, I feel I, like that's what's yeah, happening. Yeah, I call that scientism. And what also makes it something scientism is that science uses a certain methodology of what's called inductivism. And it can be extremely successful in terms of prediction and making things. Inductivism is probabilistic kind of reasoning. So we were talking about the wheel. For example, you'll start experimenting with different stuff and realize that, okay, this doesn't work and this doesn't work. So uh, through a series of kind of experiments or just observing certain things, let's say about snowfall or something like that, you conclude to something probabilistic that all snow tends to act this way. Um, wheels tend to perform best when they're, you know, and designed in a, a circular med rather than a square. Right. Maybe a smaller wheel is better for this. A larger wheel is better. Exactly. For this. Right, right, right. And all of that's probabilistic. Now within philosophy, that's the lowest. And within logic, that's the lowest form of knowledge because it's probabilistic knowledge. You have, you know, knowledge that's necessary. Um, you have deductive uh, reasoning and things like this that are far stronger than when science goes from, again, its area of expertise of probability, right, inch beyond to say that it's either the, the highest form of knowledge or the only type of knowledge, then you move into what's known as scientism. And like I said, it starts to take on the appearance of a religion. It uses a lot of the same kind of language, uh, like faith language and stuff like that. Well, that's, so that's there's, there's several things. That's believe in science. That's that's why people use. It's not by coincidence that we say believe in science. Yes. Yeah. Which is not. Um, and also, it becomes totalitarian because it cannot. Is like well, Augusto uh, del Noche that 
It's he states scientism is the view that science is the only true knowledge. And he says an advocate of that position inevitably leads to totalitarianism. Well, why? Well, because you can't you can't question that, right? So it's it's it's, it's almost like cult like, right? But uh, that a cult leader doesn't allow you. It's my joke is always. There's one thing you'll never find in a cult and with a cult leader. They're not teaching logic in critical thinking classes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? You'll never find because they don't want that. You can't question the system. And so any competitors and, and you know have to be squashed and their system cannot be the object of any proof. And it does not intend to elevate any other forms of thought above that. That is a totalitarian, and it inevitably leads to, you know, in various places in history, it leads to very much when it merges politically into totalitarianism. It's ironic that many people in the Enlightenment philosophers made this point, and I think most educators, the ones I've been around, they would argue they would levy the same charge against, quote, religion or you in your cassock and beard as your totality, the way you think leads toward a totalitarianism because you can't question the existence of God. But is that your experience as a, quote, religious person or not? No, I mean, I'm obviously there's a, a wide variety of um different types of religions, so I can't fit them all in one box. However, I can speak from my, my own faith tradition. And, for example, in Acts, I believe it's Acts 17, where we're told, test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Maybe that's, maybe that's First Thessalonians, actually. And so... Unlike other systems of thought, and possibly even other religions, certainly cults would fall into this, that do not allow their their system and their principles to be questioned. Within the Christian tradition, we say question it. Mm. Test all things. Test test the faith. If it's good, and I, I try to encourage my students this, if it's good, it'll hold up against the scrutiny of questioning. It'll pass, you know, the, it'll pass the test. Mm-hmm. And if you're confident in that, if, you, if you've spent time working through theology and philosophy, you become confident. You begin to know it that I'm not scared to, to have somebody question it. Somebody who's not confident, somebody who's not living a life of logos, of reason, it's emotionalism. Right. Um, And so they're afraid. They're afraid for their lifestyle, their system, and various principles, either faith or their science, to be questioned. And so what do they do? They hide it. They don't say, feel free to examine and test it. 
that's what the fear of allowing inquiry is all about? Absolutely. And I think if you just look over the last 50, 60 years, there's been obviously a dumbing down of society. And I hate to say this, but I bring this up as an example to my students that, you know, back in the 50s, if I plotted out uh, grades among uh, college students, I get a perfect bell curve. And that's why we started to actually say that if you got a C, that meant you're an average. B is above average. Mm. A is excellent above and beyond. And going conversely the other direction. And so I said, you know what's going on now? And then I draw. It's not a, a bell curve. It's, <laughs> it's all slanted up where the majority by far all A's and B's. Yes. And then I asked mm. the students, you know, what's happened? Mm. They were like, well, we've gotten smarter. <laughs> Got the internet. We've evolved into, oh, wow. and I said, I, I didn't say that. I said that the grades are higher. Here's an important clue. Your performance is going down. And I mean, it's going by every like three, four years, I'm noticing, and I've been a professor for about 14, 15 years. I notice every three or four years, significantly the performance and knowledge, um, study habits, and um, the ability to even be able to read, let alone kind of critically think, has gone down significantly. Every three to four years, there is literally a dumbing down, which makes it as an educator, I'm sure that um, you could relate to this. You have to get quite creative (laughs) to what happens when everybody starts getting dumber and dumber, but you still have a love for knowledge and a love for um, your fellow human being that you want to help them through this. You have to get quite creative in how you present the materials. Is this, is this in part somehow attributed to what you call in your paper, this postmodern idea that there's, there's no, there's no, ontological principle that's transcendent for students anymore. In other words, there's not something they have to adhere to. It's that the reality adheres to what they believe to be true. And so in some ways, is is that what you mean by dumbing down is that there's no longer some transcendent, um, uh, uh, transcendent standard? Is that contributing to the problem? I think that may be kind of an underlying, what I really think is just, as you had mentioned, an entire, and part of it's actually removing the, the, the transcendent ground of being in the intelligible world. Mm-hmm. And that'll eventually be replaced as Nietzsche says that, you know, once you kill God, then it's simply power, right? Like, that's all there is. So there's these power struggles and things like that. But part of that, what emerges from that kind of radical move, as I call the Promethean Rebellion and uh, Nietzschean deicide, is a whole restructuring and revision of society. And that includes education as well. And so you don't have the kind of classic educational model of antiquity, like the classic liberal arts 
and how, you know, there's these, you know, the quadrivium and trivium and how all these different subjects are related. And you really went to, to school and you became kind of a, a Renaissance man or woman. You were able to see how all these kinds of things work together. What we find is a radically different world as far as education goes in modernity, the new world versus the old world. And in the new world, everything's compartmentalized. Everything, um, the classical liberal arts education's out the door and everything's mm -hmm. specialized. So you're going to be the engineer. This person is going to be the the doctor, this person's going to be the mathematician, this person's going to do politics, etc. Mm -hmm. And each person really doesn't know anything about any other subject. They have their little niche that they work in. I think that combined with the fact of the advent of the internet in which you have this enormous amount of information, not knowledge, information and data being poured in from all over the world makes everybody very susceptible to manipulation and control and deceit and these things for political, for uh, agendas, for uh, financial agendas, geopolitics, and a lot of these things going down. And the unfortunate consequences of that is really a dumbing down. You just, the system just kind of proceeds this way. There is no longer any desire, anything within our communities to have a kind of model of education that was in the old world. And so is this the rise of technocracy? Technocracy is part, yeah, exactly. And part of it's, you know, like I said, you'd pointed this out, people aren't concerned about transcendent truth no about grounding this everything's productivity and yeah. manipulation um it, it becomes very mechanistic in a kind of will to power that you right. know the stronger both financially and politically will wield their power over and i think it's both financially and politically beneficial for them to have the masses kind of dumb which is exactly kind of relating back to what we're saying here. You don't see the people that I would categorize is the um, devotees of scientism. I always make the joke, the branch COVIDians. <laughs> you don't see these people going, you know what, let's really get down to the bottom. Let's get as much scrutiny and try to falsify these things and see what passes through that uh, intellectual scrutiny. You don't see them at all. Right? You get a type of emotivism um, and shaming. Grandma killer, you're anti-science. Um, you're not part of the team. You have these kind of social cult-like tactics that cult leaders use. Um, you get praise. You, so it's all operating kind of within groupthink that's highly emotive. And you get praise when you do the right thing. You get the likes and the thumbs up. Um, you're hailed a kind of hero. And then you're shamed if you don't go along with the group. And that means push up the emotions, high up on the emotivism, and suppress uh, critical thinking. And so it, 
advantageous to somebody that wants a type of program like that to keep people dumb down and stop questioning stuff. So, so I'm having this thought, uh, is COVID then the suffering of it? Now let's, I don't want to talk about the disease itself and, uh, the spike protein. I'm talking about the suffering of it, the way that we suffered it in the, let's call it global North. Let's call it in the light people world, the world of new enlightenment philosophy, the places where we live, where you live, where I live, Europe. Mm -hmm. Is the suffering of it then, if I can say this right, is it particular as opposed to the suffering of it in, say, the global South? Because in Africa, not only did they have fewer cases and way less, way, way, way less um, inoculation, many, many, millions, millions, billions fewer people took the shot, but they also had less COVID. And I wonder if there's not a spiritual, there's something spiritual in play in the way we suffered in the West because of the way we, our bodies were already, or our minds were already built by the enlightenment. And in other words, were we susceptible because of the way our minds worked? Not only our bodies, maybe obesity, but our minds themselves were more open to a type of suffering from this disease than say in the global South. Does that sound crazy? I wonder. I don't know. Um, That's a good question. I mean, that would be, how should I put this? Um, We definitely know that there is some sort of important connection between the way that your mind perceives things positively or negatively and the health of your body. Right. And and not only that, but like cognitive behavioral therapy teaches that you will experience more pain and suffering. If you think about your pain and suffering in a particular way, if you think that um, it's unmanageable, Um, If you live in fear and anxiety, um, that if you perceive of it in all negative terms, then surprise, surprise, it opens the kind of floodgates of information that come in to actually have you experience more pain. Whereas they were able to see in science that those who thought there's something redeemable about this, this is manageable, it's not all doom and gloom. And they didn't perceive is they didn't experience the same levels of pain with the same stimuli, right? So the same thing that should like, I don't know, you put your hand in a fire or something like that, um, just as an example, um, or you have a broken bone or something that the two things ceteris paribus being equal the one person that thought about in a very negative and unmanageable way in a very pessimistic way would actually experience that pain as much more intense than the person who was kind of more optimistic. And so that would lead me to believe that it's, it's at least likely that yes, that you're, your whole ethos and the way that you kind of yes, live yes. would probably affect kind of um, even immunity or something like that's not beyond, you know, uh, a reasonable 
um, expectation that you'd find something like that. And also, too, the way that we live, um, the sort of kind of practices of, I mean, what is the worst thing for the new world? Death. Right. Death in the old world is very present. Something they're very familiar with. And so we do everything we can to avoid death. That's why you have this kind of advent of these new philosophies of AI and transhumanism and stuff like that, that Mm -hmm. I want to transcend death on my own terms, right? So it's not on God's terms in terms of the resurrection and things like that, because there is no God. I'm God, right? So it lies on me to, to become eternal, epitheosis, right? Right. To become God, even though there is no God, to transcend death. And I think we really see that in the new world is that everybody is just afraid of death because they don't have an answer. That's the end for them. And they've, they're so scared of facing that. They'll do everything they can. And we think about this even in mortuary science and the way that we practice burial, right? Do everything you can to make that deceased body look like it's living. You don't want to freak anybody out, right? And remind them that we're all going to die. And so kind of ironically, we end up probably engaging in practices that make it worse for us. Yeah. I mean, think about like quarantining and stuff like this. And um, one of the things that was a real concern for me when this first kicked off is that I know how long it takes and how much clinical trials and the amount of time to get something passed as far as medication um, and vaccinations and stuff like this. And then you get a very, very new technology and it's just rushed straight in. Nobody knows what this is going to do. You have the inventor of the mRNA saying it's really dangerous. Be really careful. Um, But we get this emergency act that passes it in. Well, what do you see? You see everybody just jumps on board why and um, does something is potentially very dangerous, either in the short term or the long term. Um, why? Because they're scared of death. <laughs> yeah. And they might actually do something that ends up killing them or at least is doesn't seem by scientific and medical standards um, wise and therefore becomes unscientific. Mm-hmm. So do you think do you think then? So what what happened with me is, is in working in West Africa, I was scared of death when I landed there as a young man. And I met this family who lost five sons. She had 11 kids and five of her sons died. But they took care of me. And one of the sons died when she was there. Her name was Takadi and her son was Jomagan. And watching them process that death was nuts. It was the process was the same way they processed and went through that death the same way you see like a startup company process the production of a new of a new product. It's it was everybody knew exactly what was coming. They had this really profoundly efficient understanding of death and took it on head on in the West. It's almost the opposite. The living is very processed. The dying. Oh, my gosh. No one knows what to do with it. I I find it fascinating the amount of non-conversations people have about death in the new world. 
There's almost no conversations. And I wonder if we live in this false state of knowing and then death sort of takes the mask off of all of our, all of that illusion of our life that like, uh, yeah, you thought you had it all under control when in the old world, at least definitely in West Africa, everybody sort of knows they know that this life is fragile. Now there's a lot more death. So what would you say to that father Deacon? Hmm. There's a trade-off, right? I don't think everybody wants to have a mortality rate, you know, infant mortality rate in the, in the 60 percentile. Nobody wants that. So can we balance this scientism with real science in a, in a, in a way that makes sense for culture or is there no way to do that in your mind? I think so. Um, I think we need to kind of encourage kind of more kind of communities that share um, a similar kind of ethos and ideology in which we can promote good science. Um, Because again, your ideology and philosophy is going to determine how you actually practice science and what you think it is and what you think you're doing. And, you know, the best example of this is bioethics. That your philosophy and ideology or religion is going to determine how you actually practice medicine. And you have all kinds of issues um, that uh, occur in palliative care, um, end of life scenarios. So we're talking about end of life that administering you know, uh, pain medications to pulling the plug. And well, what do we do? I mean, how do we actually do that? We're all going to die. um, But yet we want medicine. We want science. I think all of us in a good sense, but what does that mean? To what extent? Well, that's going to be determined by your kind of philosophy and ideology. Mm. In the new world, death, there is absolutely nothing redeemable or any meaning in death and suffering. So it must be overcome. In the old world, and certainly in the world of Christian, traditional Christianity, death is overcome. Yeah. And suffering is transformed, both on a cosmic scale and a person level, that the experiences and the evils that we go through in life, we're called to make something good out of that. We're called to transform that and and bring about something good. So there's a kind of fine balance there that when it comes to experiencing pain and death, that we don't think that it's either possible to entirely eliminate that nor should we even try, but we don't want unnecessary suffering or pain. So we may not have a kind of philosophy. It's like nobody should ever be in pain whatsoever. Now that kind of ideology is absolutely disastrous. We can just look at the opioid crisis with uh, the Sackler family and Purdue pharmacy with prescribing over prescribing and lying about the, um, Oxycontin is a non-addictive 
um, opiate pain relief uh, reliever for moderate to severe pain. And they marketed that and they were able to lie because they were operating on a philosophy and ideology that said no one should ever have to suffer. Well, I don't agree with that. I mean, if I could remove all suffering from my life and I did that and every bad thing, I would probably be a very terrible person. I'd be a sociopath because I believe in God and I believe that there is some redeeming value in suffering. And so I think that you're seeing the contrast of two philosophies and ideologies on the issue of life, death, and pain between the old world and new world. And I don't think that simply going back to some of the treasures of the wisdom of the old world means abandoning science and medicine. I think it can be done very well. If it, science it, remains, there's a, boundaries. Mm-hmm. If science remains a, a methodology, a method for, I always think of it as if science remains a type of staircase, not the destination. <laughs> like let's, let's go down this road in order to sort this, but I'm not going down there because I believe in science. I really struggled with that during, during yeah. the uh, pandemic, because like I said, the, the smart people I know were, were in agreement, orthodox or not. Very few people said, what are you talking about? I'm not following the science. You, you, you hear the antagonist. I'm not following the yeah. science, but I actually had that thought a lot. I'm not following any science because in my mind, science has, be, has taken on this. Let's do scientism has taken on. Let's just be honest. There is a atheist wrapping around all things scientific in 2022. It's very difficult to go deeply into science and maintain your, say, Orthodox Christian belief in the resurrected Christ. That's, there's tension, right? Mm-hmm. And I always wonder why there's tension. And I started to realize that in some ways, scientism is predicated on atheism. Absolutely. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And um, if you read my paper, I talk about that. Well, I mean, if you remove... Here, here's, I'm going to read a quote from another paper because I think this kind of sure, illustrates sure, sure. Um, the difference between the old and new world. The stark contrast. So I, I'm talking about like what happened in modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of radical shift in the way that we view nature. We've already talked about science itself medicine, pain, death, mm-hmm. that uh, the moderns think about that in a very, very different way. And it's very easy. You, you hear this term, the enlightenment. Um, well, that is another kind of emotive word. It's, it's not intended to convey meaning, but rather emotion because the hey, are you for the light or you want to be in the dark? Um, are you educated or are you a dummy, right? In the dark ages or something like that. And now the thing is, we like to think that there is no wisdom. Thank God we're not in the dark ages. Like all those dummies, they couldn't do anything. They they were probably bloodletting for crying out loud. Oh, yeah, and, for uh, sure. For believed sure. that the 
<laughs> the earth was the, the center. <laughs> what a bunch of jokers, right? <laughs> um, and so we like to, again, do this kind of false dichotomy. And the only way that you can do that is if you're ignorant of history in like a classical liberal arts education, right? Only if you've been taking STEM classes and didn't read any history or philosophy or literature, would you ever even be capable of coming to a conclusion like that? But that's what's going on today. And so I said, you know, that view of the world, nature, and death, and it stands in stark contrast to the age of antiquity, as you mentioned, the, the world, the old world, which is often mistakenly thought not to have had any developed advanced technology due to what? Well, they're dumb, right? The lack of their knowledge. Right. right. However, that's an oversimplification, and it misses the point that the ancients, although possessing certain techno technological knowledge, purposefully did not employ that or develop these techniques beyond a certain point. Why? Well, that's going to be determined by their philosophy, religion, ideology. Exactly. Because the ancients' primary concern was religious and not technical. They did not employ or develop those techniques beyond the point where they could, that would impede or prevent what was far more important. And that was a pursuit of the higher orders of reality, right. the transcendent ground of that order. For example, and I love this quote, the architects of, Saint, um, of Hagia Sophia and Constantinople were quite capable of making a steam engine some 1,200 years before James Watt invented it. But that, in, that person didn't use his skill um, Actually, he did. He only used it to make a house that he was uh, living in shake as though there was an earthquake in order to get rid of an unpleasant neighbor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that. I just told that story on like two podcasts ago. And th did you know that I, I think it was at Hagia Sophia they used that same technology during the um, uh, during the consecration of the gifts as a way Dean oh, on wow. these. Yeah. There was also, they use the same technology to provide the icon of awe during the liturgy. I don't know if it was in Hagia Sophia, but I know that it was in a church somewhere near uh, Constantinople. That same story is told uh, uh, about a church. So they weren't dumb. There was actual wisdom there. We, we, we believe in science. We believe in right. technology, but we have to say, um, up to what point? Um, how do we apply it? How do we understand these things? Again, um, we don't think that people should undergo unnecessary pain just for the sake of suffering. But we're not going to want to dope them up so that they can't, uh, you know, in the end of life right. scenario, kind of prepare themselves for, for dying. And I think I'm going back to... Um, you know, your story about in Africa, Darkity, the families yeah. that mm -hmm. I'm sure they would be fine of having medicine to ease the pain, but not make somebody out of their minds so that the family can't actually spend time with the dying. That, that, that happened, Father Deacon. I took the child on two occasions into the city and they were just upset. Because like, no, let him stay with us. We know what's going to happen. They're not going to fix him there. And they didn't. 
it was pretty nuts. It was really formative to me for, for now, me. Contrast that to the new world and what was going on with COVID. Um, people who were immune compromised, diabetic, that were at the highest risk, um, that, um, or just people that didn't even have the COVID, that were dying of, of cancer or something else in the them. hospital, were not allowed to see their family members because of the COVID. So they had to die alone. Just the opposite just of the opposite. what you're describing in Africa. Yeah. Why? Because we're trying to save lives. So we're trying to do medicine, but then the medicine and the science prevents the far higher things of the individual's repentance and preparing for death and the community around them. So we just shut everybody away. We don't want to think about death. We don't allow anybody contact with one another and their loved ones during the dying process is terrible. Yeah. And there's also not a layered, sophisticated spiritual understanding of life. It's just breath in lungs, breath, not in lungs, you know, because there's a lot of ways to die in the old world and orthodox understanding you know even tolstoy didn't always get it right but he talked about you can be walking around and dead because your spirit mm-hmm. it, it, your 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 body's life has eclipsed your spirit there's actually no spirit left in some ways you're kind of dead anyway and i i felt that too father deacon during the uh covet i'm like yeah no one's going to get COVID, but people still did anyway. But they may already be dying in their own way, both the people who aren't sick and away from their loved one and the loved one. They're dying a different kind of death. Yeah, I thought about that a lot. I wonder yeah, this, I, though. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. No, go ahead. Okay. So let me challenge you as we get toward, sort of toward the end. This is interesting. I, I want to keep going because I want to flip it a little bit and see if what you think about this as a philosopher. One of the narratives in the, the New World, um, especially Gibbons and a lot of the people who took off and wrote history after him in the fall of Rome, and he, he had this sort of narrative about Christianity was that there was a class, we'll call them technocrats, just because that's what we call this modern class of people. They had a techne, they had a, a type of um, particular knowledge and they wore a particular outfit and gave particular advice to the great many masses. And that advice was spiritual or religious. And it was, it was contained within their, within their profession. And those were the priests, people like you, and that they had particular knowledge and could, and could do particular activities that gave them power. And that, yeah, we may have a new technological class now, but those classes have always existed and quote, religious people don't like those classes in 2022 because they're not that class. What would you say to that? Well, I, I mean, nobody's going to deny that there's a hierarchy and power structures, which ironically um, part of the kind of modern enlightenment movement, especially in the French revolution was to destroy all that both in nature mm-hmm. in society and this kind of egalitarianism and fraternalism. And we're all equal, which is a total lie because the, the powerful elite are going to be like oh, suckers. We fooled them. Now we can actually rule over them. I don't think any of us are going to be so naive to say that they're not actually real 
power structures and hierarchies. Um, but the goal is not, for example, a teacher as over and has a hierarchical standing over this is a good point. the students. Um, but what's the goal of the teacher? Is it right? The Taylor oh, because I right. want to smash them and um, right. you know just control them. No, it's their their goal is for education, and we all know what would happen if we just said, you know what, we're all teachers. Um, which is kind of, it's kind of happy. You know oh, what? Yeah. Everybody's opinion is great. Like, I don't even know why I'm up here teaching. Why don't you get up? And everyone's teach? a leader. Everyone's Everybody's a leader. leader. Um, then your primary goal of education and betterment of the human being is destroyed. So as the priest, certainly um, they're over and they have power over um, the laity and the parishioners, but it's not because they desire power. It's because that's a good working order. And if we did away with that, people would not progress spiritually or in terms of acquiring the virtues. Now, for some reason, we all understand that in business, but when it comes to the religious fear, it's like, how terrible that, um, yeah. That's the ref, that's the reformation. Everybody, everybody's the boss now, and um, mm-hmm. has that's the reformation. Say. That's the reformation in us. That's the, re- you know, I always joke with my own kids. I'm like, yeah, here's my problem: is I raised, I raised uh, rebels because I raised you in America, <laughs> which is I raised you according to the ethos. And if you think about that, it's almost it's impossible to escape that America, we are the revolutionaries and we offer revolution to our teenage children as a a way to be. We almost can't help it. You know what I mean? And I I think about that as an aside. I think about all the things in culture that have been given to us, all this reformational culture that's been given to us and how hard it is to think about the old the old world and to actually live it and it came out during covid i just i just saw people that i know to be quote orthodox just headlong toward what i were just really weird scientific conclusions in their own parishes i'm like wait a minute hold on a second that doesn't fit for me and so, wow, the power of culture, right? It's a thing. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? We're, we're holistic beings. So, you know, part of the orthodox life is, is not simply, oh, you just go to services, right? You just do. But it involves all the aspects of the human being, mm-hmm. um, education, health, um, eating. There's a, a holistic kind of picture. Yeah. And if you're malformed in one area, um, that's going to show up in other areas. And I think that's, I think a lot of the stuff was kind of masked when everybody's kind of going to church together. It's like, oh, we all believe the kind of same things. We're all reciting the same stuff. We're all on the same page here. But what if you're, whether it's because of, like you'd said, raised in kind of revolutionary spirit 
of an American ethos, um, or you just, you know, your upbringing or malformed in your education, um, you wouldn't know until something comes up that right. tests that yeah. and reveals and opens up. And this is why I call it it's apocalyptic in the sense of the the original sense of the Greek word as a, as a, a revealing, an unveiling. Mm. Um, and I do appreciate that. And I, I think about the same thing that it's only in adversity that you see uh, a person's true character. There's many priests that if it wasn't for difficult things and adversity and persecution and um, this crisis itself, I never would have known who they really are. They're all they're the priest that gives me the Eucharist and confession. That would be it. Yeah. But in the midst of adversity, people see this in war too, that the cowards are revealed and the virtuous and the courageous are revealed as well. And so there's something kind of good in that that I think we're actually seeing. And then it made me, once I started to say like, well, wait a minute, we're not all the same. Just because we're going to church and saying the creed together and doing the prayers, you're talking about this and it's totally different than, and I wanted to know as a philosopher, how did that happen? <laughs> how did you go down? Like, I'm very interested, you know, what's your story that led you to kind of think this way? And in this kind of investigation, um, you start to realize and it took me back through all of this kind of history through the enlightenment. Like, this is how it happens. This is I see, I that see. influence and it conditioned them. Like you were saying, it's almost impossible to get out of that. Mm -hmm. And now we can take that rebellious spirit that we're brought up and direct it in the right way that, well, wait a minute, just because I was born here and told this, I'm not going to take that for uh, granted that that's the truth. I'm going to challenge it. I'm going to, well, that's a good, that's a good rebellious spirit um, because you're testing things and you're rebelling against falsehood and you're rebelling against manipulation mm -hmm. um, and dehumanization and stuff like that. And you're not going to have the wool pulled over your eyes. So I think that despite kind of being brought up in kind of maybe a more difficult environment in the new world, and especially in America, that as Christians, we have hope we can redeem that. We can channel it into the right direction and be like, no, I'm going to question that. That doesing't make sense. And part of that, I was just thinking about times back in earlier, you know, we were talking about everybody's afraid of debt. Well, we want science and medicine we, we want to improve the conditions of life. And you know what's a really important question? Ask somebody, why? Because that's going to reveal, what is an atheist going to say? Well, why, you know, if I asked an atheist. Comfort. Yeah. My um, comfort. It's why is that a, pleasure. Yeah. And you just keep going and going, right? Because they're going to just pass it off to another word. Why pleasure? Well, like, why is that an actual good thing right and um yeah oh, oh yeah you're gonna go down this whole socratic yeah you're gonna end up with you're gonna get to a point yeah. that because of the position or philosophy that they take they have no answer to they're just 
socially conditioned to say these words that, oh, because um, you can get more stuff, you can have more pleasure. Well, first of all, is pleasure like more pleasure a good thing? But this is an old mm-hmm. idea, this Epicurean idea. This, it goes way back. I mean, in some ways, it's not new, but I guess cult, it's, it's embraced by the majority of culture. Maybe yeah. that's what's new, right? And because people are uncritical and they're taught not to challenge things or test all things and hold fast, that which is good. Just like you said, the Socratic method, Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Mm. But that's the life that everybody's living and thinks worth living, right? Mm. But don't, don't question it. I just don't think about that. And uh, just go with those words. That was uh, what we were taught. Pleasure, uh, you know, more longevity of life reduce suffering. But when you unpeel the layers, right, and you get somebody to look within themselves and ask, why do you believe those things? Ultimately, like Socrates, you'll get to the point, I don't know, which is a perfect place to be. That's a purpose, perfect place to learn and grow is with the statement, I don't know. I don't have any justification or foundations for all these beliefs. Well, but that walks you up to the to the to the majesty and awe of the eternal. We're not supposed to know about all that. I mean, not in the way we're using it right now. See, this is what Dostoevsky did for me is his books. I was like a good Episcopal kid, whatever. And then I went again and lived with these Muslims. I told you that story, but I started to read Dostoevsky in these mud huts doing this development work. This guy's stories are messy. What the heck? And, and the victors and the stories are the losers and the people who suffer the most teach you the most. And you're like, I don't really like this. And I got real depressed reading crime and punishment. But what I'm saying is, is it allowed me to realize that the thing that I had conceived in this Gnostic way you write about in the paper, by the way, which I can't read to read the whole book, but the way I was trying to corner Christianity in these four walls called my brain, he like blew it apart through this notion that your life is actually messier than you can even know. And when you get to that point, you hit awe, you hit incomprehensibility, you hit the eternal, you hit, right? You hit the thing you can't understand. And I like that about the postmodern world. This is something I like about postmodern thinkers. They're trying to confuse you to say, stop trying to know everything, knock it off, which is what I like about them in the COVID world, which is like, who, who gives a F? It doesn't matter because that can lead us to awe, right? You, you feel me on this? And that could possibly lead us to a new type of understanding of what life is for. I think postmodernism has to happen after modernism before we can start to embrace theos again, I think. I, but it scares me because I'm not, I don't want to, postmodern world is dark, you know, but what do you think? Well, what's that? nice about it too is that I mean, if you just kind of read the whole history of philosophy, it becomes exactly what you were saying is that one guy's got it all figured out. Everything's made up of water and we know this, right? And the next person's like, no, you got that wrong. It's all made up of, uh, of the infinite. And then the next guy is like, no infinite air. Then it's molecules. And right, um, right, the story right. keeps going right. on and on, right? And then people start going, well, what can we actually, I don't think we can actually know stuff. Like, 
this stuff. And then, you know, each thing keeps progressing. Like, no, you're wrong about that. You're in a worse position than you thought you were. And that's kind of where we're at with post-modernity is it's kind of just the natural kind of outgrowth of this historically that it's like you, nobody's in a position to know anything. Everything has mm-hmm. been deconstructed. Mm-hmm. Man is not in a position. And there's something good about that. It shows it's, it should be, it can be a lesson of humility that you are not God. Yeah. <laughs> You're not right. in a position that's to right. know. That's right. And second of all, it depends on how you view that. You could go the, the way of despair, or you could go, right. man doesn't have the answers. God, the one who does, comes and reveals. And so there's a real um, apologetic there and ministry of evangelism that'd be like, but God comes to us. And he doesn't come to us in simply arguments, but in the mystery of a personal encounter. Yeah. A face-to-face, and I think about that's another good thing that you could learn if you took the right kind of perspective on post-modernity, uh, not knowing, well, think about the mystery of the person that, I mean, it would be absolutely disastrous if I could actually calculate on my scientific um my science machine, science of matter, 3000. Um, what everything, oh, here we go. I've got everything right here that, uh, that explains my love for my wife. We just put in the numbers into a system. Um, that would be disastrous. If my wife told me, like, asked me, you know, what is it that you love about? Right. And I and actually broke it down into a bunch of algorithms and be like, well, just uh, see here, I use my science calculator and it's formulated here in a spreadsheet that you can access anytime you have that question. Um, There would be no marriage in a relationship. Well, I can't say you are tall and fleet of foot. (laughs) That's not, (laughs) I have calculated you are tall, fleet of foot, and I like your nose. Thank you. (laughs) Now I can point to things that are, that are joyous and good and, but that does not encapsulate or exhaust. Why? Because the person transcends all formulas, all numbers, all calculations, and in a sense, all reasoning. So it doesn't mean that it's unreasonable. Yeah. I can point to things and be like, I love this about you. But that's not what our relationship is. It's right. not exhausted or reduced to that. And so that's what relationship is is a mystery it's an encounter can't really explain it away what it is that forms you know friendships and we can point to certain things and i think that could be a good lesson from modernity that there isn't and it's a rejection and sort of pushback from this overall scientification mechanization and algorithmization of all things can be explained into formulas well, is we can now maybe we can take postmodernity and be like, Hey, maybe we can start living in community now and be yeah. real people face to face with each other in that mystery. It's so interesting. Uh, we were doing our 
our reoccurring donor class. And we got into Carl Linnaeus, who really is the kind of father of taxonomy. He does the, or he's one of these early light people who gets deep into what it is to be. He comes up basically the first four, some say five categories on race, because he's trying to create this taxonomy about what a human being is. And he's trying to do it a void of the, the old Christian tradition. But it's really interesting because what he says is, that, okay, what's a species? Because now he's starting to realize that a human being beings. Wait a minute. Okay. Is a black person and a white person, same species. Now you could say he's doing this innocently. I don't really care. I don't want to get into CRT and all that, but what I'm saying is, is he, he father, he stops and he says, Oh my God, or maybe he doesn't say God, but Linnaeus says, Oh my science. Oh my science. <laughs> I can't do this. I can't do this until I have any, I think the quote is until I have all the definitions of any and all relevant ideas. And you're like, wait a minute, let me read this again. I cannot understand what a human being is until I understand all the relevant ideas completely. Then you see all these, right? You see Diderot and all these cats come up with the the dictionary encyclopedia. You have these attempts to literally know everything. And what, what, what strikes me about what you're saying and what your paper saying is, is this is a project. And now I think the project is over and it didn't work. <laughs> I think that's what happened. And postmodernists are like, this is what I like about them. No kidding. It didn't work. You hubristic, weird modernist. The problem is they don't do any assertion of good. They just destroy and tear down. Right. So, I think it's a great chance for another conversation about the old world or at least about the eternal themes. You know, I think it's right Absolutely. now we can do it. Do you see that in your classroom? Do, are, are kids like, well, tell me, let's, let's try it. Do, are they open to sort of these wacky ideas or. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, you know, I can be critical and pessimistic about stuff, but um, I'm very optimistic as well. Hey, Turns out I'm actually nuanced about stuff. <laughs> not, yeah, not everybody says that about Uh-oh. you. By the way. <laughs> but one thing I really appreciate and optimistic about the kind of Z generation is there is a sort of openness. Yeah. Um, they haven't been socially engineered um, to the extent that the other generations. Mm-hmm. have they're living in kind of the afterbirth of a lot of these movements that they've seen um, have come to tragic ends and th- that were not successful. And like you were saying too, that's exactly what the postmodern does is that the, you know, the enlightenment was so optimistic. Yeah. We're going to a new world free of death and suffering Bacon. and knowledge yeah. Francis Bacon, yeah. and that um and war and it's like oh whoops the 1920 centuries are the bloodiest <laughs> centuries ever whoops yeah yeah right we're more fragmented than the other there's no fraternalism everybody's divided mm-hmm. and compartmentalized um the very notion of man is now mechanized machine mm. um it was a huge disaster and the postmodern realizes that well i feel something similar and analogous to um to the z generation students 
they're looking backwards and they're seeing that like, well, that didn't work. You know, it reminds me of kind of like the, the older, younger brother. That's what my younger brother did. He's like, okay, don't just observe. Don't do that. Turns out you get in trouble with mom and dad when you do. That was a disaster. Don't my brother was really um, wise and learning from all of my mistakes. And I think each generation. I feel this too. I feel this too. I don't know how it plays out um, as COVID does whatever it's finishing up here, but let's just end and I'll say this and you can add anything you want at the end here, but your, your paper is, it's just really helpful for this podcast because it, it does frame a type of ontology. Like who are we in a, in a really deep way. And then it takes on COVID and basically, I think, am I right to say that what COVID was to you was a type, it, it, it was, a, like you say, a Gnostic scientism. It was a way to assert a faith, not so much assert a material scientific, quote, truth. Does that sound right to you? Right. And if you remember... um. I actually quote, who was the author? Let me see real quick. Oh, John Gunnell, John who Gunnell. Is, uh, was explaining the technocracy. And he was saying one of the kind of common features um, of technocracy is that technology and science constitute a new, that's the important word, a new legitimating ideology. So notice it goes from being a methodology to an ideology and a new type of ideology that subtly masks certain forms of social domination. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of people talk about the pandemic and stuff like that. Uh, at the very least, if we took a modest proposal, you know, reading some of like the World Health Organization um, and, you know, uh, some of the, you know, what I would call the technocrats and elites, Gates, and different people involved in that. Let's take a modest proposal. They're not going to let something. I, I really doubt that they're concerned with the health um, and stopping uh, a, a pandemic. They're more concerned with, as uh, Klaus talked about, the Great Reset, ushering in a new, another new age, right? Uh, a new no way doubt. of living, a new, no you know, um, framework for, and we're going to use this to do that. And when you look at their proposals, it's social domination. I mean, all that we've seen from this is just more social domination. So you can kind of judge a, a tree by its fruit. What has actually amounted and come about from all this? Mm-hmm. Well, we're all enslaved, right? We're, we're dehumanized, and it just seems um, we're poorer than ever, right? We have all this inflation, and the rich are richer than ever. Hmm. They, who stood to benefit from all of this? Was well, kind of what I went into. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's what I think's actually happened. You know, um, I'll, I'll I'll put a link to Patristic Faith, which will eventually link to the book when it comes out. Uh, yes. Absolutely. And um, maybe we have another conversation if you'll consider it down the road, because 
and I don't, I don't want to open it up. I think right now, but will you come back and talk because you, you, in your paper and you mentioned in the previous paper, even more so that uh, underpinning this kind of modern new world faith is uh, a settled science called evolutionary history. (laughs) And I would love to talk to you about evolution as a type of settled science that when I dig into it anyway, I think it's one of the most blatant examples. I'm not going to tell you it's not true. I don't even know what, how that word works in it, but talk about not science. Uh, I'm yeah, happy to say. By the way, I wrote my PhD dissertation um, on the philosophy of mind and philosophy, science and evolution. Um, and so Let's do that. I eventually abandoned that because of just kind of going through um, thinking deeper kind of in these issues of philosophy of science. But at least I'd be I feel that I'd be qualified given that I wrote my dissertation on this. I know all the different theories about like the evolutionary theory. And um, I would love that you could share that with our listeners. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say evolution. I don't want to tear it apart as much to say, are we talking science or are we talking philosophy here? Um, because when you start to see it as a philosophy, it still may be true, but it really changes the conversation, not just about evolution or schools, or it changes the whole this is an anthropological conversation. This is like about your being suddenly. And it, it really helped me when I started to look at evolution to understand what I am or what well, I think. Well, think about I it am. this way. Because uh, you're an educator too, my per- and I remind my students of this on the first couple of days of class. As an educator, as a professor, it's not my um, duty um, to teach you what to think, but how to think. Mm-hmm. So that if I teach you how to think, you will know what to think. And so, as long as I can do that well, teach you know the correct methodology. Um, Learn how to spot the errors. Don't be deceived. Um, here are the techniques. Um, there's a sort of kind of freedom. If you want to avail of that, that program, you can, and you can be successful so that I don't have to tell you this is false. This is true. That's a good educator, I think. It, it might be rare these days, but like that's kind of my philosophy of education. Yeah, that's it's old school. Well, Father Deacon Ananias, thank you. Uh, you've come on, and next time we'll also do our uh, lightometer test with you, which kind of we ask you five questions, which place you either very, very new world or very, very old world. <laughs> and uh, I would love to ask. We don't even need time. to ask. Yeah. <laughs> Although I would love to. It's it's interesting. Yeah, it, it usually shakes out. But um, so thank you, and. Um, Keep keep going. There are a lot of people that listen to this that will already know who you are. Um, and then there are some now who can go investigate. And thank you. It's really beautiful to have you on. Thank um, you. It's an honor. Yeah, it's been a real joy. Thank you very much to Father Deacon Ananias out in Montana. He's coming back. We're going to talk about evolution because that one's interesting. Because that is a very new world idea. But let's just say, Shenis Kagimarjos. That means to you, the victory, it's often said at a super table, we are opening up the restaurant any day. 
Stay tuned. Join our mailing list at www.first-things.org. This is Watar. It's produced by Andrew Shorkugzik in Russia. He was here visiting and he got he had to go home and the war broke out. But he has arrived on this day. Andrew Schwark back in Russia, producing for us. Daniel Paternos, who does all types of stuff for this podcast. Thank you to you guys. Share Watar with your friends. Hit us up with a solid review on iTunes, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Your love for us allows us to show love for others. Knock bomb dis hasta luego. Come bufo. Peace out.